This episode of the American Shoreline Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at TI Coastal Services of Wilmington, North Carolina. If you're looking for great engineers on the Southeast Atlantic shoreline, don't forget TI Coastal Services. Find them at ticoastal.com. Well, everybody, we're back at the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association meeting in Hutchinson Island, Florida. This is Peter Ravella, host of the American Shoreline podcast, and we are just wrapping up day three of the conference. We're going to have a couple of more good guests on the show, and uh, well, I think I've got the two coolest people at the whole conference, uh, a couple of old colleagues of mine from back in the day, and uh, we're going to talk about the conference, we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about the environment. Uh, Lois Edwards, who is the owner and chief executive officer of, tell me the name of this company and, um, and why it's named what it is. It's Ardea Environmental uh-huh. Uh-huh. Consultants. And what, where does that come from? That, Kim's really the author of that name, so I'm, I think I'm going to give that to her. And Kim Colstead, who is uh, Lois's compatriot uh, in her uh, business and uh, in environmental consulting on the coast. Kim, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Tell us about this name. Well, we uh, we chose Ardea because it is the uh, genus name for the great blue heron. Oh. And the great blue heron can be found on the beaches, in the wetlands, in the mangroves, in the river. Basically, wherever you find a great blue heron is where we work. That's pretty good. You know, and I was, as a biology major, I should have known that. <laughs> but, well, <laughs> you know, with the, with the birds, we learn the common names because it's all, it's all um, uniform with the bird names. The right. Well... So how long has the company been in existence, Lois? And uh, tell us about the formation of this, this wonderful co- company. We've been in business July is three years. Um, we formed our company, um, I would say it was, uh, we planned our company uh, formation probably for about a six-month period, trying to be very pragmatic. Um, we started without any clients, without any loans. Oh, did I mention we didn't have an office, computers <laughs> or anything? But uh, we, we a virtual got, office. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we got up. Uh, we decided when we were going to leave this uh, firm um, that I actually had been working with for over thirty years, and uh, we pragmatically went through that, got our licensing, and we met coffee shops once a week for about four months. Figured out what we were going to do waiting for that phone to ring, and eventually it did start ringing, and we've uh, been fortunate to find a, an executive suite um, over on the river in Fort Pierce, and uh, we have support staff there, but ultimately it's Kim and I, and um, our goal is to uh, do a great job. Um, our marketing is the job we complete, and we value relationships above all. And tell our uh, listeners around the country, what kind of work do you guys do in our, our DIA? Uh, well, just as a little bit of a history, I started my career at the Department of Environmental Protection in the ERP program, which is Environmental Resource Program. Um, that involves permitting in wetlands and um, surface waters. And uh, I was lured <laughs> to the other place by Lois. And... Um, then I got into more beachside work, doing JCP permitting, and Lois is 
probably the foremost CCCL expert in the state, I would say. Oh, and um, so we do we do all of those things now. Um, I hadn't been doing ERP uh, permitting for a while, but now I'm back in it mm -hmm. full force. We've been working with a few marine contractors, and, and I have fun with that because it's kind of like revisiting your high school if, if you were popular in high school, <laughs> which I was not. <laughs> Well, the reason I wanted to talk to you guys is in, in a lot of people, we, we talk about grand issues along the coast all the time. We're talking about sea level rise and big giant projects, but the practitioners of the trade are the people who work in the regulatory compliance process. Everything that happens along the coast has got a regulatory oversight component, and there are people who dedicate their careers to understanding that system, making sure that projects are put together the right way, and bringing economic uh, opportunities to, into reality through the permitting process. And um, it's good to stop and pause and, 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 and uh, remember how hard this process can be and to talk to the people who, who do it. And that's what you two do, is uh, work on the permitting and the regulatory side in Florida, which I think has some of the, you know, most stringent probably uh, control regulations along the coastline. Um, Lois, you've been at this for about 30-plus mm, years. I started very young, like a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, worked for Coastal Tech, which is uh, a firm that we both worked at way yes, back sir. in the day. And uh, uh, over your career, I would like to, if you can reflect back a little bit, um, how has the process changed? Because you've been working in regulatory compliance in Florida for so many decades now. Uh, what's, what's, what, what really stands out to you? I think the overall management by uh, regulatory staff, um, rules and statutes that evolve uh, to uh, allow you to effectively mitigate for your projects. Um, I think that we're a lot better at that. I know mm -hmm. we are. Um, I think when we start working with the regulatory staff, uh, you know, when I initially started working with them, the DEP program, the control line program was just started. So I started with them. So we learned together. And I think uh, having that background with staff, and there are many that have been in their job as long as I have done what I've done, right. um, you build relationships. And I keep saying that, but I think that's the most important part of consulting and that you work together. Unfortunately, we start out working together and, and we learn together and we were evolving. Um, I never thought that politics would become a part mm. of my job working for a coastal engineering firm. It, probably very naive. Um, politics have greatly influenced what we can do by virtue of available grants. Uh, uh, the ability to effectively mitigate and have it received well by the agencies. Uh, reviewing, uh, as they do here at FSBPA, we're at the uh, September, September conference, but in February it's a technical conference where we share uh, all the valuable surveys and monitoring and reports that have been done. And so you, you look at 30 years of information, yeah. and it's invaluable. And I think the state of Florida, um, at one point I worked with the department staff on uh, revising control line rules. And what we did is we looked at other states and what were they doing relative to being mm -hmm. effective in managing the beachfront construction. And what I was quite pleased to find that Florida was the, on the leading edge, and I think we still are. Yeah, I think so too. 
You know, it's an interesting uh, contrast here when you talk about regulatory compliance and the technical work that you do. And I know, Kim, that's your forte uh, in the firm is the technical proficiency of understanding landscapes, understanding the resources, what the proposed project might do, how to mitigate for the impacts, that kind of stuff. But it's this combination of, of high technical skill and the relationships part. And I think that's often overlooked is being effective as a, as a permitter and in a regulatory compliance role. Uh, can you talk about that, Kim? Uh, you used to be at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. How does the relationships, the personal relationships really, and the professional relationships you have uh, affect the, your ability to do what, your job? Well, I think um, coming from both sides, or, uh, the, the governmental side and also the consultant side, I've, I've worked both sides, um, relationships are important because you do have to have some measure of trust between the consultant and the government agency. Uh, when I was at DEP, we definitely had our, you know, you're not supposed to, but you you have your favorite mm -hmm. consultants because you have a level of trust. You know what that what they're submitting is the truth. It's right. accurate. You go out there, what they've reported is what you see. Um, and that's what we try to emulate as well because we're not trying to uh, pull one over on anyone or we're not trying to fight with anyone. I actually said that at a wetland delineation yesterday. I'm mm -hmm. not trying to fight with anybody. This is what it is. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully we can come to an agreement on that. Yeah, I think uh, when I used to do permits, I would tell people, um, if you would like to hire somebody to comply with the rules, that's I'm happy to work with you because we're going to figure out what the agency needs, what the re requirements are, and, and form the project in a way that's compliant. And I promise you we will get through the process and we'll get through it quite quickly. Uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. Well, yeah, things. and that being said, we have had our fair share of fights. Um, yeah. I, I, I actually presented on one of those at uh, FSBPA in one of the February conferences in, I don't know, gosh, how long ago was that, Lois? Probably five, eight years ago. It was five, five, five maybe five years ago, um, because we had permitted the South Beach project in St. Lucie County, and there was a lot of contention around um, ephemeral hard bottom. And, yeah, well, that's a tough and, one. Well, it is. We, it we is, should talk about that, actually. Well, yeah, it's a, it is a tough one uh, to start with, and we had professional, the county had professionals out in the water multiple times over, you know, weeks of time. Okay, so let's, let's we got to pause here for okay, the folks out sure. in California and tell them about this, because along the beaches in Florida, there's a resource that's referred to as ephemeral hard bottom, which is rocky outcrops that uh, are along the beach that are often buried by sand, and as the shoreline erodes, these outcrops uh, are exposed, these hard surfaces, and their habitat, they're for sessile animals, we'd say, for mm -hmm. the biology world, uh, barnacles and things can attach. They're important biologically. And when you restore a beach, you're going to bury them back under sand. And in Florida, the standards on what you have to do when you bury these ephemeral hard bottom features is quite uh, significant. Uh, can one of you guys it, to inter introduce our audience to ephemeral hard bottom mitigation uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll in two minutes? To, to <laughs> well, I mean, again, I, I wasn't one of the professionals out in the water. Um, we had a really excellent firm out there doing that, and mm -hmm. and I trust them to this day. I've worked. I've been working with these folks for the biologists who yeah, the biologists. and I'll, I'll just count say the it's, it's CSA. Yeah, CSA, CSA is a good firm, and I've uh, worked with them for I don't know fifteen years 
And I, I know all, most of them by name and face and, you know, consider many of them friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do they, what, what, when you hire them, what are they, what are you asking them to do? Well, their, their job is to go out there and document the condition of the resources, whatever okay. they may be. It might be um, coral reef. It might be um, worm rock reef. Um, so we have different types of reefs here in Florida. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. Um, and then so they're counting the it. They're, they're quantifying the, yeah, the and surface also, area, the acreage, the yes. biological productivity. Yes, all yes, All that absolutely. kind of sort of stuff, right? Yes, and, that, and that's what they, where we start is they go out and, and, and you get a baseline survey so that you know what is out there and um, what you may be impacting from your project. Um, and I've actually been very fortunate in that I've worked on a number of beach projects that had no no impact um, intended. You know, things happen, but mm-hmm. the the design was to be no impact mm-hmm. or very minimal impact. Um, which I'm as a biologist, I'm a fan of that. <laughs> right. We avoid first, as well. Yes, we, we avoid first, yes. and then we minimize. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, if we can't do either of those things, then you mitigate. Right. So, if you're going to be burying the hard bottom, the the rule is you need to mitigate for that by either uh, restoring, creating, or preserving uh, the same type of habitat, mm-hmm. preferably in the same geographic region. Uh, but there are there are instances where there have right. been exceptions made because... <clears throat> so for, for folks around the country, uh, what it comes down to is if you are burying or impacting three or four acres of nearshore ephemeral hard bottom reef of whatever the classification of that is, you're going to be asked probably to go offshore and put rock into the water and to create a reef further offshore of at least the same amount, right? It's not typically one to one. No, means. no, it's never one. It's never one. So if you if you damage two acres, you're going to have to put in maybe four sometimes. Yeah. And this is where, in the professional dialogue with the agency, there this is a very uh, there's a lot of judgment that goes into the nature of the of the resource being impacted. What is its true quality? How rare is it on that shoreline? In other words, it's not a mathematical process. And this is where the professional dialogue between CSA and the biologists who are counting that and the permitters who are leading the permit discussion, yourself, Lois, and the agency, can, can, there can be differences of a, a view. And it's not about we want to get out of the rules. It's that it's these things are hard to understand. Right. Right. Yeah. And we had for that particular project that I've been talking about is they went they were out in the field physically a number of times and then unfortunately the there were folks up in the agency that were looking at old aerials from DOT that aren't necessarily high quality. Right. Um, and that's inexcusable these days when we have yeah, such quality aerials. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, again, this is this is like five years ago. Okay. So um, five that I presented it was yes. the project itself we permitted in maybe two thousand eight. Yeah. So almost eleven yeah. years ago. So yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is a while ago. We've learned, we've learned a lot. We've come a long ways. <laughs> come a long way. But uh, that that trust element that you're talking about, right. I really think, is essential. Whether they, and it, it's it's when you're coming into the process, are you coming in um, into the process uh, with solid data, your best work, that your analysis of a property, whether it's a wetland or near shore hard bottom, 
whether that's accurately done. That's the kind of currency of the trade here when you're talking about good permitting and good regulatory compliance is that technical skill tied to the relationship. And I do think the agency staff learn over the years who's bringing good data and good projects into the process and right, understands yeah. the rules and who doesn't. Absolutely. And Lois, that sounds like one of your high uh, priorities is to, is to maintain that relationship and, that, and that, that, that really high standard. It is. It's important. It's important to the environment and it's important to the client. It's important to the funding that we get for that project. And uh, I'll tell you, that particular project was real contentious, but we've come a long ways. And uh, Kim's presentation actually brought about rule and policy change. So, you know, I, I encourage others that have instances where, you know, the game just wasn't fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I encourage them to speak out and to move forward and to share that. I see the agencies as very receptive. We've got human beings that are the agency staff, right. and they also have the same desire that we do to right. take care of our environment and do the right thing. And I yep. think the more we share, and that's what FSBPA does, we can come here. Kim presented that paper. In a matter, we got, uh, they put aside committees uh, and groups that looked at di- different elements of that project and what went right, what went wrong. We had rule change, we had policy change, and now when it comes to mitigation, uh, and, y- and you came along that path with us yeah. too. Um, when it comes together. to mitigation, now we all are on the same baseline, and um, and I think our trust is over the years has grown, and it's a lot better. Well, that's why you guys are a successful consulting firm. Uh, I think that trust and that professionalism is a key thing. I want to talk about the uplands a little bit, and I want to talk about wetlands. And uh, Lois was, and I have been at the conference here for a couple of days, but yesterday she had to go out in the field to Kim and, and Lois. You guys went out and did a wetland delineation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, introduce our audience a little bit to what wetland delineation is and what you guys did yesterday. Um, well, in the state of Florida, I, I'm actually proud to say that uh, wetlands are very well pre- protected here. There's a lot of regulations um, because it's recognized that it's an, an important component uh, to the flow of water through the state um, and other uh, biological characteristics that I won't won't bore everyone with. <laughs> but um, basically, it's regulated. They're regulated at the state level and the federal level, and in some areas are even regulated at the local and municipal level. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to get down into the weeds onto that, but um, basically there are three components to any wetland delineation. You've got your plants, so you have to have a preponderance of of what plants that like to live in You could be technical with this audience. (laughs) (laughs) You can say hydric soils. I know. It's it's, it's the teacher in me. (laughs) I used to teach high school, and I... I, Anyway. But the the three characteristics of a wetland, how they're defined. Yeah. You've got got your plants, you've got your soils, and you've got hydrologic indicators, and how they're um, evaluated in different ways that make up a wetland. So there's different tests at the state level um, that you can... You meet the threshold of one or more of those tests, and you've got a wetland. Right. So the way that it works here, and this is around the country, this is true. This is, you know, partly what I'm trying to do is help people understand regulatory practice and consulting, the people who do this work. Um, there isn't a state person who goes out with you initially. What you guys do is go out on these landscapes that you have not seen before and assess them and try to decide, determine under these characteristics, and there's just a lot of rules that define uh, how this is done, 
but to analyze the landscape and say, look, there's 4.2 acres of wetland. It is of this particular type. There's categories of wetlands. This right. is its uh, biological value. And you do this assessment, and this is where the trust comes in, because nobody's looking over your shoulder right, right. there. Right. Um, they're probably not going to visit the site more most often, unless there's a particularly important issue involved. They have to trust that your judgment is good and your technical expertise is trustable and sound and you understand the rules and how it should be done. Right. Um, so, Lois, over your career, over 30-plus years, um, talk about how the, how the state has evolved in its um, practice of protecting coastal wetlands uh, in Florida. Well, you know, we start out with uh, we have a number of inlets that were built by the federal government, Corps of Engineers. And so we started out initially um, with management, with the inlet management plans, which was um, the beginning of a plan to maintain uh, the beaches for recreation and then the resources for water quality and for the future of our planet. And... Um, the firm I work for actually did the first one in the state. Hmm. Uh, it was readily embraced, and um, eventually one was put, uh, was, uh, we have an inlet management plan for every inlet in the state of Florida. Right. And within that plan, there's time frames and uh, goals and objectives and projects described. This is a wonderful tool for the regulatory agency and for our legislature when they start uh, allocating funding yeah. for these program, these individual elements of it. And then we went into um, the, the Coastal Construction Control Line program emerged, and through that uh, prudent development, um, trying to stay off the dunes, um, planning, ensuring that everyone is on the same path as what is what is our overall objective. So I think the planning first, and then what are the rules and policies that, and statutes that we need to comply with in order to do that, mm -hmm. and we need to demonstrate that. And then again, if we don't, if we have not avoided uh, to the maximum extent we're going... We're, the impact after, to the yes, resource. Then mm -hmm. we're going to have to minimize a project, and mitigate, right. and those are very sound management policies. So I think the inlet management plan and the coastal construction control line plan and with uh, the other program within the DEP is the joint coastal program, which is right. for the beach restoration. Mm -hmm. Those are uh, management plans that have been worked on for decades, and I think we're seeing the fruition of that effort. You know, this is what I want to know. When people think about Florida, I think outside of Florida, uh, the reputation is it's a rock and roll in real estate uh, state that people come down. There's lots of high rises. There's the, the beaches are pretty built up. They're dense. I mean, it's a reputation that I, I think if you don't live and work in the state and are engaged in the practice, you it's not entirely true. Uh, there is a degree of care. Uh, let's talk about the relationship with clients. We've talked a little bit about working with the agencies, but you know. Uh, in my experience working with uh, developers and permitting, and I've permitted hotels and subdivisions and things like that, uh, you know, it matters a whole lot uh, what their mindset is in terms of their willingness to understand the rules and to really um, ensure that their project is done the best way it can be done environmentally. Uh, sometimes I've met and and occasionally work with folks who don't have that mindset. What do you do when you, when you have a client who's like, "Listen, I just think this is unfair. I want to make I want more density on this on this property. 
how do you handle that very delicate balance of environmental protection and the economic interests of your client? Uh, how do you handle that, Lois? Well, I think that also has evolved over the years. I can remember when we first started out, there wasn't a lot of regulation. So heck yeah, you know, we're going to go out here and we're going to build condominiums and we're going to just lay them up side by side and we don't care if we're on the dune. And uh, ignorance, we mm -hmm. didn't understand what our impacts were going to be. And we did have folks that, you know, built up the uh, projects on the beach that maybe weren't as conservative as they could have been. I'm not seeing that anymore. Really? Um, That's good. Our clients... Uh, very much uh, value the environment, and they recognize the uh, what their role is in their new project area. They want to initially become uh, well with the, and in sync with the community. They want to become and help and support and do community things. They want to become involved. They want to meet with the local people and get their uh, get their input on their design. It's very prudent to do that right up front. Right. You're not. You don't want to fight with the people that live there. You want to work with them. And right. I, I think Kim, we've seen that in even the past decade that we're not getting those clients anymore. They're just going to go out and trash the environment. Right. We're being very conservative, and I think a lot of that has to do with policy. Uh, reporting, monitoring, and uh, just educating everyone mm -hmm. involved. That's great. Do you think that have, have you had the same experience? The sensitivity of the folks that are proposing these projects are more willing to to shape them to be the best environmental outcome they can do it. Yeah, I've been sitting here racking my brain trying to think of a a difficult client like that or a difficult situation like that, and I can't think of any. That's um, great. <laughs> That's good. So I, I don't know if we're we're a very small subset of what's going on in the world, but I think... Um, I think we're all environmentally conscious at this yeah. stage of our life, and we're looking at, you know, sea level rise and climate change, and we recognize that our footsteps are very important, our footprints into the environment. So, I'm, again, I'm seeing that uh, we're working together instead of against each other. That's good to hear. Um, we, had, <clears throat> we had the opportunity last night to talk to Tony McNeil, was the longtime uh, director of the Coastal Control Line Program at DEP, I guess 34 years, received an important award from FSBPA last night. Uh, and I just I think it would be good to little shout out to Tony. And uh, I know you've worked with him so long. Why don't you share your thoughts a little bit on Tony McNeil? A, a true professional, um, a kind man, a respected man, um, uh, very pragmatic, very intelligent, a leader, um, I love to fight with him on regulations. He was my mentor. Uh, I started when he did. Uh, we've been on the opposite sides many times. Uh, dread the call from him, Lois, Lois, Lois. I'm like, oh, yes, Tony, hi, how are you? What did I do? <laughs> but I never even been on the other side. Uh, Tony only utilized... Uh, what his knowledge, the rules, policies, and his um, what he learned from uh, administrative hearings uh, on difficult and controversial projects. And you could be the other side at an administrative hearing, and you go outside the door, and Tony, and you can still talk to Tony like you do on a day-to-day -day basis rather on a permitting issue. He never took it personally. He just did his job, mm -hmm. and he did it so well. Yeah. And we are so fortunate. Um, what we've accomplished as far as uh, being conservative with beachfront development, uh, Tony uh, deserves 
uh, a lot of that recognition. That's great. And I, it's part of uh, my mission in life is for the public to better understand that the, the, the folks who work in this profession, both in the agency staff and in the uh, community of, of consultants, because in the, in the popular press, really, it's quite common to hear those bureaucrats are doing this. I mean, it's, it's, it's considered a pejorative term and, and looked down upon as a profession, really, for agency staff people and regulators. And that just pisses me off. It really does. Mm-hmm. Because, like you, Lois, for decades, worked with people, worked in the agency, and who I know and, and what motivates people and their commitment to their work is very high. And somehow we've lost the ability to sort of understand, look, these, these rules matter to the community and the social welfare and the greater good. And no one, and both the rapport between the folks who do the work that you do and the agency staff is really kind of unknown if you're not in that. You're right. Uh, there's a lot of respect that goes on. Very tough decisions have to get made sometimes, and people do their damnedest to do, the, do, the, do it the way they, the best they can. Right. And that's what I wanted to... And I think that's where Florida's maybe different than other states is we do have that camaraderie. We're on, the, we're together. It's a team. What are we going to do to do this right? Right. And how are we going to ensure that we've done the best we can for Mother Nature? Right. And that's, you know, that's apparent at FSBPA. The DEP staff is here, all of the consultants, the scientists, the, the biologists, and the engineers who design this stuff. There's a collaborative atmosphere here. It doesn't mean that it's all kumbaya and there aren't going to be differences of opinion that have to be hammered out, but uh, there's a, a level of respect that's you really bet. important in the process. Uh, Kim, I wanted to ask you this uh, as a biologist, and I, I kind of remember this when I was first a regulator uh, and facing permits for the first time and seeing things getting built and knowing, you know, having been to some of the places that were being developed. Uh, there, it was it was not easy for me initially because I had a connection to these things, and I ne- sometimes did not want this stuff to happen. Right. Uh, as an agency regulator, we don't have. I mean, people think agencies can just say, "Hell no, we're not doing it." That's really not the way that works. Um, in your experience as a biologist and someone who cares about the environment as much as I know that you do. Um, have you, how has it been sort of emotionally to deal with, uh, do you still occasionally when you're out on some wetland site and going, God, Lee, I just wish this wasn't going to be an apartment complex next to this. How is that as a person, as a, on a personal level? Um, well, I think when I started in this business at an agency and you kind of, I was straight out of graduate school. And so you still have that idealistic gleam in your eye (laughs) that you're going to crusade for the environment and save everything that needs saving. And unfortunately that's, or or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Mm -hmm. um, that's not the regulator's job. Mm -hmm. Our job as a regulator is to ensure that if development happens and it causes impacts, that those impacts are minimized or mm-hmm. mitigated for. Uh, it's not to stop development completely. And uh, my master's degree is in, is in conservation biology. And a big message in that particular field is you, you have to find a balance between devel- human development and the environment, mm-hmm. um, a sustainable solution. Right. Um, that, that's a word that's bandied about a lot, but it's it's the yeah, it's the truth. I mean, you need you need to find a balance between the two because we're never going to completely stop 
development. There's seven billion pl people on the planet Earth. Is it yeah, eight? Is it eight now? Seven point five. Oh, okay, and it's just going to keep going up unless there's some horrible travesty. Um, so we're not going to completely stop development, right? But um, if we can do it in a way where we where we still have uh, the biological characteristics of the different types of habitats, yeah. Um, that's the way yeah. that we, we try to approach it. Well, you know, I, I, I always kind of uh, thought of it, because I think most, uh, a, a lot of people go through that experience when you're young and you've been educated and you understand, you start to learn, gee, these resources are really important, how this all fits together, these habitats are so critical, blah, blah, blah. You really get smart about that. And uh, I think initially you're, there's a verve there. And when I had young permitters working for me when I was at the Texas General Land Office, when they started, they were like, this is not going to happen. I yeah. said, calm down. <laughs> like you say, that's not your job. Uh, that's not what the statutes say, what the rules say. Um, but it, that, that process of, of sort of maturing into being a, a good consultant and a good regulator at the state level is, I think, a process that's pretty common for people who come from the biological sciences angle of this. Yes. Um, but the thing that I, I want to ask you is, you know, uh, there were friends that I had who were in the environmental advocacy community when I was working in permitting. Uh, and if I were talking to them and having a beer sometime, they'd say, golly, don't you want to, you know, th there, was, there was little tension there mm -hmm. uh, because of the reality that you've described, uh, that, look, we're trying to find the best way to make this happen. We cannot stop progress. We're really, that's not what's going on here. Um, have you had that experience, Lois, in your career where people are like, "What, are you, Lois, why don't you stop that from happening? I hate that that building is going up there. Well, I've actually been, you know, one of those people. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine line that you walk. But um, I, I had a local project that is entering into fruition that is uh, in my playground. It's in the Indian River, and um, I, that's where I live and play, and I don't like it, mm -hmm. but I also work for that client. Mm -hmm. And wow. so what I would say and what I do is I do the right thing. When, it's, when, when projects come are unfolded, there's public meetings. There's places where you can go and state your opinion. You can have groups get, you know, form a group. Right. Get educated. Go before the the folks that are proposing this. Tell them what you think. What I've seen uh, again is an evolution where they're listening. Mm -hmm. And I still didn't win. They're still going to build it. Mm -hmm. But they moved it, and they right. moved it to a place where I think it was safer for the citizens and the recreational. Uh, activity that right. is in that project area. So they might going to get my way. I wish I could all the time, but I can't. <laughs> right. But use what uh, tools are available to speak and speak knowledgeably and join groups, learn what's going on, and uh, be a part of uh, the evolution of that project. Right. Well, it's, I think it's one of the best things about America, and I think I kind of demand people think a little harder about how yeah. we operate in, in government and how we operate in private practice and economic development and its relationship to the environment, is there is that opportunity. We have a, you know, there are avenues where advocates can play a very significant role and often do change and steer projects. And that public role is anticipated and built in, and it can get a little contentious in a community when there's 
economic development, jobs, and a tax base on the line, and some uh, beautiful natural area. And that's the American way. That's yes. what we do. We kind of duke it out. The folks who are doing the consulting work have to be total pros, way above board, quality work, you know, high levels of standard of information into the process. It's important. But you mentioned in the Indian River uh, Lagoon in the area that you lived, you said live in and play in. I need to know more about the Indian River Lagoon and what's happening with the algal blooms and the history recently. Uh, Kim, you're a biologist. Introduce our audience to the problem happening in the Indian River Lagoon. Just what's been going on in water quality in the Indian River Lagoon? Well, um First of all, the Indian River Lagoon is an estuary that's um, host to one of the most diverse areas in the world. Um, thousands of species, um, from seagrasses to microscopic organisms that people don't even know exist, up to right. dolphins and manatees and all the charismatic um, megafauna that everyone loves. Right, right. <laughs> but we mammals. We love the we love mammals. the man the mammals and. Um, what we have here in Florida is we've got Lake Okeechobee in the center of the state, and it's surrounded by a system of dikes, and basically you've got a watershed that goes all the way up to Orlando, so everything that's coming down from Orlando is coming through the Kissimmee Prairie and mm -hmm. other water bodies into Lake Okeechobee. And so there's a lot of fertilizer, there's a lot of pesticide, there's a lot of um, things going into that, that body of water that... Um, weren't going into that body of water historically historically 100 years ago um, or maybe longer I'm I'm mm -hmm. I'm not an expert on like a Okeechobee right <laughs> but um, and then so what happens is the water levels go up and down because it's surrounded by dikes mm -hmm. and the Army Corps of Engineers is in charge of that and in conjunction with several other agencies mm -hmm. um, they do releases and so the releases go on either side of the coast, one to, through the Caloosahatchee River down to Fort Myers area. Mm -hmm. and then On the Atlantic side. So on the Gulf side. Gulf side. And then on this side through the St. Lucie, uh -huh. so, um, which mean, is just a few miles <clears throat> uh, south of us. <laughs> okay, so uh, for folks, you know, when you look at a satellite image of Florida or you look at a big map of Florida, there's that big water body right in the south central part of the state. It's huge. I don't know what the acreage size is of Lake Okeechobee, but that water body, that's very apparent. Uh, it's the biggest lake in the state yeah, by think far, it, I, think I think. nationally it's the biggest is lake. It? And so, as you're saying, this is this is a collection point for all of the up, you know, the river of grass that used to flow, the the, the marshes and the water flow that used to tr transcend Central Florida all the way down to uh, Key West. That's mm -hmm. all been interrupted by dikes and dams, and we need the water to be in a certain place, and that's what Okeechobee is about, and that's been the history of Florida. Really, the hydrologic management of the state is just. This is one of the most manipulated landscapes in the, in the world, mm -hmm. I think, Florida. Oh, yeah. Um, and Okeechobee is an important part of that whole history going back to the 30s, I think, and the hurricanes and the big floods and all of this stuff. But I think the thing that you're talking about is the outlets from the, uh, the lake go to the Atlantic shoreline to get into the ocean and to the Gulf shoreline. And out of this water body, which has collected lots of stuff, uh, runoff, as you said, pesticides, a lot of fertilizers, lots of ag lands near here, um, those nutrient levels are coming into the Indian River Lagoon. And um, that's kind of been the discussion 
that I'm reading about from afar in Texas. I think the coverage is a lot more intense here in Florida and people are a little more uh, knowledgeable. But if you're around the country and you've read about the Indian River Lagoon, you've probably seen pictures of maps of green, just incredible algal blooms that are causing a lot of environmental damage. Help our audience understand the biology of that a little bit. Well, what, what those um, nutrients do is they cause algal blooms. So al algae that's normally here um, kind of gets um, kick-started into a, a massive bloom that can, that can do a lot of things. It can shadow light from reaching the bottom, so that affects our seagrasses, which is one of our foundational... Uh, Habitats. Yeah, and, and food source for almost everything at, at some point or another. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it also can become toxic uh, to fish. So you, we see a lot of those videos with the fish kills and uh, fish washing up on shore and things right. like that. So Yeah, massive fish kills have happened in Florida. Are you an optimist, Lois, about the capacity of the state? We've talked about the professionalism in the private sector and in the public sector here. Uh, this is a tough one. Um, what do you, what's your what's your take? Are we going to get this right? I mean, there's some big problems there. I think that we're on a path where we this year there's been no releases, and it's a result of having the Corps of Engineers take a look at their schedule for releases, mm -hmm. and if there's going to be releases, it's going to be in the cooler months, so that we don't have uh, as I can I guess so there's not as many algae yeah. blooms and. Um, and also that it's before the rainy season, so it circumvents that lake uh, basin getting so high that it has to be discharged. Right. Um, I guess how I guess the question I I have and it probably won't be answered in my lifetime, but how do you fix something that you and or the state or the federal government? has done. Um, you know, how do you fix this massive... Huge system. Yes. And that's way above my pay grade. Yeah. But I do see that there's being some really good policy put in place now. And this year, we're happy to say we don't have those. And we, right. we're, our tourists are here. We're in the water. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you get out of the water a bunch and a great <laughs> boat. <laughs> and I like that when you say I live and work and play in Indian River County. It's true. Uh, you know, it's a it's a big challenge. And uh, Governor DeSantis, the new governor of Florida, Republican, a conservative, has come in and taken seriously this problem. And I, I like to say that every conservative is an environmentalist if they're in the right circumstances. Uh, and that's what's happening in Florida. Uh, property owners, people who are generally more conservative, are more than happy to consider that we've got to find new rules because our businesses are failing. We're losing tourists. If the condition of the water is that bad, if there are millions of dead fish, dead manatees, dead dolphins, and whale sharks, which stunned me. I mean, tremendous environmental catastrophe, really, in 2018 here in Florida. Uh, that's bad for business. And so all of a sudden, we get a Republican governor who's reformed the South, uh, the South Florida Water Management District, entirely new board, right. named a scientist on his cabinet level, uh, has put in place the Blue Green Algae Task Force, and the Red Tide Task Force is coming back. I mean, they're getting serious. They're sounding like a bunch of, you know, uh, Sierra Clubbers right now. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's because there's an economic 
connection Absolutely. to healthy environment in Florida, especially. This is a damn sure. recreation state. Um, so I'm hoping that it they figure it out. But I think that it's going to be tough. I mean, the how do you look? We, we we manipulate these environments so substantially that they get out of balance, and I think that's sort of what it looks like to me. Is that sort of what you think? I mean, what, why is all? The, it seems like it's really out of balance. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it has been for some time, and I'm I'm not sure uh, what triggered the the recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more, more it's very much debated. Yeah, uh, and unclear. And I don't. I think laying it all at the feet of the Corps of Engineers and Okeechobee Management is is you know I interviewed uh, yesterday uh, from NOAA. Uh, God, I can't even remember her name <laughs> because I'm old. <laughs> what is his name? Uh, it was a. a a scientist, and he said, "Listen, I think it's it's too simple to say that it's simply core releases, although right, it's a contributing right. factor. And this is, you know, the complexity of the science it drives the policy, and we have to get the science right. It just goes right down the middle of what you guys do professionally. Uh, of course, that's going to take a whole bunch of scientific well, horsepower. I think the other thing we're finding, like you said, um, it's real easy to blame the government for the way things are going, but we're finding that, you know, people, there's a lot of uh, septic tanks in Florida. Yes. yes. And so you and I, when we're, you know, fertilizing our garden or mm-hmm. um, when we uh, are on septic tanks, we are part of the problem. And yeah. so then you have to have these grants and you have to try to get the infrastructure in. Well, then we're going to whine about having to hook up to those. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of places to look, but we really do need to look at ourselves first and our impact Yeah, that's 100% right. I mean, I I think it's kind of paying the bill. I mean, Florida was a little fast and loose in the old days in development. (laughs) You could build subdivisions without roads. You didn't have to put in sewer systems and any of that stuff. And millions and millions of people live in those kinds of subdivisions now. And the retrofitting that's going to have to be done here is going to cost millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. There's going to be new taxes and lots of fights about that. Yeah, right. But, you know, the bill comes due. Uh, you mentioned, you know, 7.5 billion people on the planet. Florida's population, I don't know what the history is here, but let's say it's always going up. It, I kind is, of know yes. that. it is going up all the time. And, and we have a big, and that has a big impact on the environmental quality of the, of the you know, the resources in this state. Right. Um, but there's one more subject I oh, want to talk God. about. <laughs> and really when I called Lois and I said I want to do a show with you and, and Kim, um, is I think it's really important uh, it, that what you guys have done professionally here. Uh, longtime consultant, both work for a larger firm, and at some point, you know, decided we're going to do our own company and formed a woman-owned business that is run by women. You guys are in the profession and doing it successfully. Talk about why that's important, uh, Lois, for you and what motivated you to, to really go out on your own and take a risk like you've taken. I think I skated a long time uh, working for uh, a, a larger firm, a consulting firm, and I, I think... Um, it was time for me to step up to the plate and start making some decisions. I, I make them personally all the time, but professionally, very truncated. Mm-hmm. And um, it was time to take that move. And um, the firm we had worked for, I had worked for, for over 30 years, was uh, 
bought by a larger firm, uh, a good firm, mm-hmm. but a larger firm, and then you just see that you 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 fall further and further down the pecking line, right. you know, to um, making your own decisions and what you feel. And I'm passionate about my work. I'm passionate about whatever I do, and uh, we wanted to. We wanted to be in charge, and I want to do it on my terms because I want the opportunity to help in places where maybe I, I couldn't on the corporate level. Um, for just simple things like you have a client that's just between a rock and a hard spot, and you know that if you just gave a little bit of your own time, a little bit of effort, you know, spend a day or two, do whatever little report they need, it'll make a big difference in how mm-hmm. this project moves along. Well, damn, I may spend a month trying to convince my supervisors that this is the right thing to do and right. put in paper how much money they're going to make and what the bone, you know, what is the long-term effects of this pro bono work. Uh-uh, yeah. it's not for me. And Kim is uh, Kim and I are of like mindset. We have the same work ethics, and we certainly realize how important it is to be honest. And relationships are the utmost mm-hmm. of importance. And so, I'm older. Not we're old, but older. Yeah, we're experienced. uh, Experienced, let's say experienced. (laughs) And I'm sorry I didn't do it sooner because I think I could have helped make a little bit more difference. But I'm I'm out there now as a woman small business. People embrace us. They trust us. They are uh, always, uh, they're our cheerleaders. They're wanting us to succeed. Mm -hmm. And we have the ability to make those uh, decisions immediately. Uh, We were taught well. Um, and we've taken that lesson, and we're now applying it to ourselves. And there's nothing better than working for yourself. Nothing. Well, I wanted to ask him about this because you mentioned you started in what 2014? Was that the year? Uh, 2016. 2016. That six months before that, you guys started talking about this. You know, we you both had secure careers, long professional commitment to a firm, stability in a salary, benefits, all the stuff that goes with that. So I'm kind of curious about that first discussion when Lois came. I don't know if she came to you and said, you know what, I'm thinking of getting out of here and starting my own business. Uh, Would you be interested? Can you take us to that moment? What was that like and how did that evolve? Uh, Well, let me just start off by saying it was the other way around. Oh, was it? I had Kim on the other side of that desk going, Lois, we got to do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, Kim, you need to go back to your room. (laughs) (laughs) And every day, every day in the morning, at noon, at night, she's at my desk going, we need to do this. We can do this. Is that right? I think a lot of it was, like Lois said, we were taught well. We We were doing everything. We were bringing in our own work. We were drafting our own contracts for that work. Mm-hmm. We were doing the work or directing the work right. and then bringing it to a close. And it, it, it got to a point where it's like, well, gosh, you know, 60% of what I'm bringing in is going to everybody else right. <laughs> or 60 plus percent, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> And um, that I just say sixty because that's, that yeah. was what we had to be to break right. even. <laughs> well, if but. you're yeah, if you're contracting it from the contract point through that, so what? Um, are you guys co-owners of this thing? Yes. yes. Oh, yes. That's so cool, and uh, and it's as it, so you don't regret it, obviously. No. Um, and has how has it changed for you as a professional to own your own company and to be in command of your own? own store with Lois? Well, I think, you know, let me just say first, we're not in this to get rich. We're certainly not rich. My income, I don't, uh, and I know Lois's income is is substantially less than what what we used to make, Hmm. but we're uh, masters of our own time. And to me, that's, 
I, I can't speak for Lois, but to me, that's just invaluable. Yeah. Um, because time is something you can't get back. Right. Um, you're not sitting at a desk trying to fill eight hours. If we don't have work that day, we say, okay, I'm going to the beach today. Yeah. Or I'm you know, going to go run errands today or whatever. Um, you, you do the work, you get it done, and the time is your own. Right. And it's, it's kind of like uh, when I was in high school, I loved to read, and so I'd do all my homework. In, in class, so I'd have more time to read. It's the same kind of thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The two things that you've mentioned about this, uh, Lois, was the ability to do that pro bono work, to really connect with your clients, to go the extra mile, right, and then the chance to balance your life in a different way. This is why women-owned businesses matter, because I, I'm not saying that that's not important to me. It is. But I think women understand that in a way that a lot of uh, driving professionals, men or women, miss. And it sounds like uh, you've, you know, you're not making as much money, but you have more control of your professional life, more control of your personal life, and get to do great work. It, it sounds pretty damn good, Lois. It is, and I'm, I'm very happy, very happy that we made the move. And I, I believe our clients are, too. All right. So I want to uh, let's wrap this up with uh, well, I want you all to think about this and share some thoughts for professionals who are in the business and maybe were in that position you were in, uh, working hard, you know, in the stability of a larger firm, but maybe contemplating, uh, maybe at some point owning their own company or going out on your own. What, what would you say to a, a young professional woman who's sitting in a firm going, gee whiz, maybe I should do this on my own? You know, yesterday when we were out in the uh, field with uh, South Florida staff, young professionals, and uh, I'm very impressed with them, uh, their energy, their knowledge. And as we ended the field work, um, I caught myself talking to the two young ladies and gentlemen about Ardea and the advantages of working for yourself. And um, I, I think what I want to leave is that there's times where you have to provide, you know, when your family's young and you have things you have to do to provide for right. them. But while you're doing that, I think you keep, need to keep your eyes wide open for the opportunities to find out, hey, what do I want to do and what do I do with my free time? And how can I make this happen? And I found myself talking to them. They were, I think they were surprised that there was just two of us with Ardea. And, and they're with the owners of the firm out in the mud and the wetlands, you know, and we're mm -hmm. wet and nasty. And, you know, I think they were taken back that there was just two of us and we're smiling. And I'm, I'm the oldest one out there, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling them, hey, do what you're doing, learn from it, and then grow, and then grow yourself into your own spot. Yeah. Do Great. it. Yeah. Have a little courage. Yeah. Kim, what about you? What would you say to that young That's professional it. out there? Um, trust trust <laughs> your gut. You, you trust your away. gut. Yeah. Um, I'm, and as a scientist, that's a very hard thing for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very true. Scientists, it's, it's got to be data. Right, right. We're talking I'll, about I'll, intuition. I'll, you know, there and, was a lot of data. <laughs> <laughs> you had that too. <laughs> that helps. Uh, but yeah, it was, I think it's that ultimately that, that gut that makes you mm -hmm. take the leap. Yeah, of no, faith. No regrets. No, none. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what a pleasure at the Florida Shore Beach Preservation Association meeting in Hutchinson Island, Florida, to sit down with 
uh, Kim Colstead and Lois Edwards, the owners of Ardea Consulting in Fort Pierce, Florida, uh, the folks who do the hard work to make the state work right and uh, help the economy. So uh, it was really a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thanks a lot Thanks for doing the show. Thank you, Peter.